Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is time to talk about science and skepticism. Um, As always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page. I uh, posted some things this morning, so I'm definitely active there. And um, it's the easiest way to find out about interesting things throughout the week. And you can also find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarata.com. Now, before we do anything else, I want to take a moment to remind you to vote. I actually won't uh, have a live show next week, programming note, uh, because I will be working on a get out the vote campaign uh, for Yes on 3. And so please vote. Uh, Now, I personally have been having some uh, heated discussions with people about the general merits of voting. I don't think any of the candidates I'm going to vote for are particularly sufficiently uh, left-leaning for my tastes, in case you hadn't uh, realized I do lean left, uh, very much so. Um, But I vote for them anyways, because not voting is completely and utterly an exercise in futility. If you want to not vote because it shows you don't support any of the candidates or the system, I get it. But the problem is, is that the media isn't going to tell that tale. They're going to lump you in with all of the other quote unquote lazy Americans who couldn't be bothered to vote. In a year and in a year where voter suppression continues to grow, those of us who can vote have what I would consider to be a greater moral obligation to vote. And there is a legitimate difference between the two major parties, despite their very, very, very many similarities. So again, please vote. Vote early uh, if you can. Early voting has already started. I, in fact, plan to go down to my town hall tomorrow morning uh, to cast my vote. So yes, please, please vote. Uh, Again, I don't care who you vote for. Um, Obviously, I would I have preference of of who I would prefer you to vote for, but I just think voting is an important process, even if it seems extremely futile. And uh, I just, I think it's really an important thing to do. So yes, on to the next important uh, sort of programming note, uh, which is that it is the season uh, where I remind you to get your flu shot. Um, I actually had to postpone mine uh, until next Monday, uh, but I am looking forward to getting it and getting protected. And of course, I told uh, people last week that almost 80,000 people died last year. And in fact, we may know why more precisely. According to a report released Thursday, on on average, less than four in 10 adults got their flu shot last year. Only 37.1% of adults were vaccinated. That's a 6.2 drop from the previous season. And if you combine that with the fact that one of the flu strains was particularly deadly this past year, that actually led to a very large loss of life. The number of people who died can be compared to the average attendance at a Super Bowl game. 
The flu is not a joke. It's not a cold. It is one of the scariest things out there this season, and you should get your vaccination as soon as possible. Now, remember, if you get sick after getting the flu, it can be because your immune system is distracted by gearing up to fight the flu. It's actually why I postponed getting mine until Monday. I have a bit of a cold and I didn't want it to get worse uh, because I have a very important thing to do tomorrow. Um, A very dear friend of mine is having a very important party and I didn't want to be sniffly and... uh, sick in order to help her celebrate this amazing, awesome thing. So I'm definitely going to get it on Monday, but it doesn't cause the flu. It wouldn't have given me the flu. It might just have made my already existing cold feel a little bit worse. All right. So let's actually dive into tonight's stories. And uh, I did try and have a slight bit of a... uh, Halloweenish, uh, scary uh, thread throughout. Um, it's a little bit strained, perhaps, but uh, you know, it's the season. You might as well uh, enjoy it. And I do enjoy Halloween. I think it's a fun holiday. Um, so let us dive into tonight's stories. We're going to start with a show favorite and a seasonal topic, Crows. So New Caledonian crows are well known for being exceptionally crafty. They actually create tools themselves to pull grubs out of wood in the wild. Uh, And so um, you can watch uh, the famous and wonderful David Attenborough in his Life of Birds. He goes to, uh, there's a part where he goes to New Caledonia and watches crows take sticks and actually work them in order to create basically kind of uh, almost like fishing rods to get grubs out of their holes in the wood in order to eat them. And they're just very smart. And that's just in the wild. And so they have also obviously been found to be very smart in laboratory experiments. And so researchers from the University of Oxford and the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology have recorded footage of New Caledonian crows assembling compound tools. Only two other species have completed this task before in a laboratory setting, humans and chimpanzees. So the researchers gave eight crows puzzle boxes, which were accompanied by long sticks, which were capable of reaching and prodding the treat out of the box. So there was a little hole, and if they prodded with the stick, they could get the treat out of the box and eat it. They then took those long sticks away, basically because the crows pretty much immediately figured that out. Uh, That was actually their first research protocol, but within... Uh, you know, minutes they had figured that out. And so the researchers had to come up with uh, something that was a little more difficult. So what they did was they offered the crows shorter sticks, none of which could fully reach the treat. The new sticks, however, were a mixture of solid and hollow and had diameters that would allow them to be able to be combined, uh, much like putting a a, uh, smaller stick into a straw kind of a thing. And so four of the crows actually figured out the puzzle within five minutes. 
one of the crows, Mango, actually created a stick with three or four parts. The researchers note that this is, quote, the first evidence of compound tool construction with more than two elements in any non-human animal. And so Alex Kaselnik, a behavioral ecologist at Oxford and one of the study's lead researchers, noted that the experiments suggest that it may be wrong to assume that animals only learn toolmaking and other tasks through random processes, uh, through basically trying things out and uh, figuring out what, what works by actually doing it. He notes that these crows were not given any instructions on how to combine the tools, but they were able to predict the properties of the tools not yet in existence. So they can predict what something that does not yet exist would do if they made it, Kaselnik explains. Then they can make it and they can use it. Now the other three crows, Tumult, Taboo, and Jungle, completed the experiment in three subsequent trials. Mango, uh, apparently, however, exhibited quote-unquote fluctuating motivation. Uh, He actually refused to participate in two follow-up trials, but eventually recreated his success in later tests. Um, I always wonder how you could make an experimental uh, apparatus to test basically whether or not animals are refusing to do your tests because they really are just refusing to do your tests or if it's because of some other motivation. Um, Because I can, it just seems to me, and of course, this is absolutely anthropomorphizing, that, you know, Mango is clearly the smartest of the bunch. And so he was like, what, I did it once for you. I did it the best. So whatever. (laughs) But again, that is absolutely anthropomorphizing. And um, I have no idea what is actually going through his head. Now, Mango's feet actually required dexterity and perseverance, and so his tools basically fell apart several times, but he kept going until he found the correct configuration. Now, again, it's unclear, however, just how they are able to do this. It is possible that they use some form of virtual simulation of the problem, as if different potential actions were placed in their brain until they figure out a viable solution and then do it, Kaselnik said in a statement. Similar processes are being modeled on artificial intelligences and implemented in physical robots as a way to better understand the animals and to discover ways to build machines able to reach autonomous creative solutions to novel problems. And of course... That is one of the really interesting things is that, uh, especially in robotics, it seems like there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If we can figure out how to train robots to learn the way that humans and other animals learn, then it makes it easier for them to figure out how to do things. Now, uh, all I have to say, though, is that I, for one, welcome our new Caledonian crow overlords. <laughs> okay, so now let's move on to a just a delightfully funny uh, Halloween-related stories story. Apparently, there were some media stories out there uh, that recently and mistakenly suggested that the CDC had put out a warning not to put your chickens in Halloween costumes. 
Uh, This unfortunately included one of my least favorite sources of science information, a site with a uh, swear word in its name uh, that was amongst the offending publications, but also Forbes. Um, Yeah, very interesting. Anyways, Benjamin Haynes, a spokesman for the CDC, has come to clarify things. Recent media stories erroneously reported that the CDC warned people against dressing chickens in Halloween costumes. The CDC hasn't given this advice, he noted. However, and this may be where the confusion stems from, the CDC does advise people with backyard chickens to handle them carefully to keep their family and their chickens safe and healthy, according to Haynes. Now, this is, of course, because unfortunately, though they can be quite adorable and even beautiful and, uh, you know, can apparently be uh, household pets even, uh, which is where a lot of this, a lot of people get into trouble with them, uh, chickens come with a pretty elevated risk of uh, salmonella infection. So chickens and salmonella just go together. Um, It's much the same with snakes and other reptiles. uh, And so you just have to be careful when interacting with any of those kinds of animals that you are being very careful about uh, your hands. And so even though most cases of salmonella are cleared up within a week, uh, getting to that week is often not happy. And some people with compromised immune systems and especially young children with still developing immune systems uh, can have a much uh, more impactful reaction. And in fact, the CDC recommends that children under five should avoid touching chickens or holding them at all. So just keep your under five-year-olds away from chickens other than uh, admiring from afar. Now, the CDC recommends that If you want to put your chicken in a costume, which again, it is not saying it is against, (laughs) Uh, for safety, you should wash the costume in hot water after it's been warmed and then make sure to wash your own hands thoroughly after handling the costume. And again, you should really be all you should always be washing your hands after touching chickens because, uh, you know, you just don't want to risk getting salmonella. And of course, the CDC is concerned about the comfort and safety of the chickens. Uh, And so the CDC notes, make sure your chickens can breathe and walk normally while wearing the costume. Uh, But in the same vein of keeping everybody safe, they are very much against people kissing their chickens. And so apparently uh, the report was from back in 2005, but I don't things have changed all that much. But a bunch of people came down with salmonella because they were basically cuddling or nuzzling chickens uh, that were kind of household pets. And that turns out to be a very good way to get infected with salmonella. Um, And so it was like, I swear it was about 200 people uh, in the country had salmonella infections uh, linked to basically cuddling chickens. (laughs) So don't do that. Don't cuddle chickens, at least not near your face. And uh, make sure to wash your hands 
uh, thoroughly when you have touched chickens or touched eggs that have been in a nest recently. Um, you know, basic safety for uh, animal handling. Pretty much any animal is really good advice to be doing that because, you know, animals ha are prone to all sorts of interesting and fun uh, things that they can come in contact with and then give to you. Uh, so yeah. All right. So let's move on now to a pair of rather scary discoveries for science. Um, and I mean that in the way that they actually fundamentally change how we look at certain fundamental objects and how that could change how we deal with them. So first off, scientists have proved that electrons are round. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. And of course, you're probably thinking to yourself, that's always how I've seen them depicted. But the answer is, um, oh, and of course, the answer is that it turns out that you're basically right. They are circular. The problem with this discovery, however, um, is that it confirms a theoretical part of the standard model. And of course, you're thinking now, why is that bad? Well, <laughs> um, it's because the standard model doesn't explain everything. And so researchers are still trying to figure out how to explain those other things. And this knocks out a lot of those explanations. So uh, they basically, um, the problem is that it showed that other unseen particles aren't big enough to cause electrons to become oblong or oval shaped. And so this is an issue because, again, many theoretical physicists had proposed the idea as a partial solution to the problems with the standard model. Co-author David DeMille, a professor with the Department of Physics at Yale University, noted dryly, it's certainly not going to make anybody very happy. <laughs> and so, for instance, the supersymmetric standard model hypothesis—sorry, uh, the supersymmetric standard model hypothesizes that every particle in the standard model has a antimatter partner. Now, these partners would be heavy enough to deform electrons to a degree researchers should be able to observe, but unfortunately, they didn't. Now, the team observed electrons using a powerful laser. They looked at the electrons at a resolution 10 times greater than previous experiments, uh, which they themselves had also uh, carried out. And so this is called the Advanced Cold Molecule Electron Electric Dipole Moment Search, or ACME <laughs> for short. <laughs> So the researchers were looking for a hoped-for phenomenon called an electric dipole moment. This would be when an electron is dented on one end and bulged on the other by influence from the unseen and previously undetected heavy particles. Now, the particles would be many orders of magnitude larger than any currently known or even predicted under the standard model. So presumably, they'd be pretty easy to spot. So it's a very clear way to tell if there's something new happening beyond the standard model, DeMille said. 
Now, in order to look, the researchers directed a beam of cold thorium oxide molecules at a rate of 1 million per pulse, 50 times per second, into a small chamber in a basement at Harvard University. Physicists really like basements. Um, I can tell you that (laughs) because, you know, it's a lot easier to do things that require uh, very, very, very precise um, measurements where you don't want any kind of movement. So even the light movement of being on upper floors in a um, building can be really, really detrimental to your measurements. So anyways, they studied the light reflected back by molecules hit by the beam. Bends in the light would have signaled an electric dipole moment. Unfortunately, they did not see any such bending. Now, this doesn't mean that the particles aren't out there, just that we still don't know enough about them to detect them. Our results tell the, sci- tells the scientific community that we need to seriously rethink some of, our, of the alternative theories, DeMille said. Now, of course, there is a uh, larger issue um, that this is tapping into with theoretical physics, um, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> and I've talked about it a little bit before that, um, you know, there's actually some people who want to kind of divide up physics into what they would consider real physics, uh, which would be the sort of standard model stuff and, uh, you know, theoretical physics, which they don't necessarily consider to be science, (laughs) but more philosophy. Um, But again, that's a whole different story for another day. Now, we definitely know that there is something out there. Uh, For instance, DeMille points to dark matter, which is as elusive to astrophysicists as these particles are to particle physicists. So we know that something's out there, especially on the astrophysical side, because we can see the gravitational effects of dark matter on stars, planets, and light. And so we know it's out there. We just still can't figure out what the heck it is. It remains a very real phantom haunting the dreams of many a scientist. Okay, the second story concerns the discovery that spherical viruses are not round. Again, it might not seem like much, but it could actually impact how viruses are studied and strategies for treating viral diseases. Now, since the 1950s, the sort of standard model for spherical viruses was that they are icosahedral or 20-sided, with 20 triangular facets equally distributed to create a sphere. Co-author Michael G. Rossman of the Department of Biological Sciences at the Purdue University Institute of Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases used cryo-electron microscopy, or cryo-EM, to create high-resolution 3D models of a flavivirus. Now, the technique uses extreme cooling to reveal details of the viruses at the atomic level. Now, because it was assumed that they were spherical, when people had done this in the past, there was a final processing technique known as the symmetry requirement, which created a symmetrical model from the raw data. So obviously, these are computer models being created 
from data that's being uh, picked up by the cryo-electron microscope. So it's not like taking a picture of it. It's being processed by a computer system, which is why you can do something like have a symmetry requirement. Now, the, this new study actually omitted that final step. And so while looking at both immature and mature Cungin viruses, which are a, subtitle, a subtype of West Nile, they found bumps that stuck out on one side of the virus. Co-author Richard Kuhn, also at Purdue, explained that the bumps take shape when a young virus buds from another young virus inside a host cell. As proteins in the new virus's outer membrane rush to close up the opening, they form a shape that is not quite symmetrical with the rest of the membrane. The neck of this budding particle gets very narrow as it pinches off, and the proteins surrounding the shell begin hitting one another, Kuhn said in a statement. We think they might not grab the right number of proteins to make an icosahedron, and the result is a particle that has a distortion on one side. In addition, they found that in young viruses, the core structure, or nucleocapsids, are closer to one side of the external membrane than another, though as the virus matures, they do move towards the center. This could also help researchers with new ways of studying and combating viral infections. Any antiviral works by interfering with the normal course of the virus, virus's life cycle. One way of interfering with it is to stop the initial assembly of the virus, Kuhn said. So that is very exciting that they have found out this new thing about viruses, at least this kind of virus. Um, and they think that uh, other serical viruses, you know, people need to go back and look and make sure that they aren't making incorrect assumptions about how spherical they are. And again, this could lead to new breakthroughs in treating these kinds of viruses. Okay. Let us take a moment and play some PSAs and some uh, show promos, and then we will come back and talk about some other things. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking, healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do 
to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Okay, we are back. So... We are going to kind of keep up with this idea of uh, sort of scary beliefs that, not really scary, um, but, you know, they do challenge long-held or, uh, you know, long-believed beliefs. And so this is a really interesting one. Um, It turns out that women's birth canals show a greater diversity than had previously been suspected. Now, I, uh, I think that the real reason for why you could consider this scary um, is, of course, because some of you might already be thinking this. The reason this is scary, and it is definitely part of this kind of um, story, is that basically the medicine had been based on on and the models had been based on European women. And of course, this is not the only place where this sort of unthinking racial bias in medicine is present. Uh, it is all over uh, our medical establishment, unfortunately, and in our medical textbooks. 
And in fact, um, African-American women have a really big problem with this in obstetrics. And so uh, this is a very timely piece of information to be putting out there to people. And of course, we also struggle uh, with much of medicine being modeled on the reactions of men, uh, which may not be the same as those that are reactive for women. And so it turns out that there are differences, obviously, between the responses of men and women, but a lot of our drugs are tested solely on men. Um, and, you know, I've, I've mentioned it before that basically the excuse is that uh, women are too complicated and they have too many hormones and it would uh, skew the results. So we just test things on men. Uh, which is, of course, a terrible and utterly revolting excuse. Um, and But let's get back to this uh, study on pelvises. So an, an obstetrician's training is based on a model of the pelvis that has been developed from European women, evolutionary anthropologist Leah Betty from the University of Roehampton in the UK noted. But the typical pelvic shape and typical childbirth pattern can differ among populations. An update seems necessary, especially in a multi-ethnic society. And so Betty and her colleague, Andrea Manica, an evolutionary ecologist at the University of Cambridge, examined the pelvises of 348 skeletons from 24 populations across both the world and throughout time. Now, prevailing wisdom suggested that they'd find an abundant they'd find abundant evidence of what's been dubbed the obstetrical dilemma, quote unquote. This is the long-held idea that the shape of a woman's pelvis represents an evolutionary trade-off between the anatomy required for upright walking and the need to deliver large-brained offspring. It posits a series of assumptions about gestation and delivery, such as the need for the baby to rotate in a certain way, that it turns out is not universal across the uh, populations of the world. And so she goes on to say, uh, however, that was based basically exclusively on European women who have a particularly twisted canal. A different pattern of childbirth that is considered odd for European women and therefore seems to ring alarm bells could be perfectly normal for other populations. Now, examining this wide range of pelvises, they found evidence of random, neutral evolution rather than a particular push for one type of pelvis. Now, of course, when I say random, I don't mean absolutely random. I simply mean it's not being pushed by a particular kind of selection pressure. And so, um, you know, it's usually sort of neutral evolution is a better way of saying it rather than random. Um, and so if you don't have anything kind of pressing on a particular development or a particular gene or whatever, then it's free to simply um, either conserve what it's doing or uh, change in ways that aren't being particularly pushed by anything. So you'll still have a lot of um, polymorphisms in those genes. 
And so it looks like that is what's happening is that there is, has not actually been a particular push for one type of pelvis. The classic narrative of the obstetrical dilemma sees the birth canal as a tight compromise between a narrow locomotory, locomotory efficient pelvis and a wide obstetrically sufficient pelvic canal implying that functional constraints should limit female variation in the shape of the canal. This is clearly incorrect, the authors write. And so they found that sub-Saharan African populations have, on average, deeper birth canals, Native American populations have wider birth canals, and European and North Africans tend to have uh, pelvises that are somewhere in the middle of those ranges. It's only populations from colder regions that display a more oval shape of the canal inlet. Now, the researchers don't suspect that it's cold regions that have anything to do with this. They actually suspect that it has mostly to do with genetic drift. And so as populations moved further away from Africa, they displayed less genetic diversity. Each founding event, in fact, was achieved by a subpopulation carrying only a portion of the ancestral population's genetic diversity, the researchers suggest. The signature of these serial founding events is evident in modern populations' genetic variation, whereby genetic diversity decreases with increasing distance from Africa. And in fact, their analysis suggests that 43.5% of the anatomical diversity is the result of this genetic drift. And again, this study is a great example of how we really should be um, requiring diversity, not only in who and what we study, but in who and uh and, but in who is doing the studying, um, because I think that biases, even unintentional, do end up shaping people's expectations of the data. And that is something that we're definitely looking more at in science these days and really trying to grapple with and trying to find a way to make better, because it's really important that we don't continue to just basically look at the sort of upper class white European perspective and uh, go from there because it turns out that this is the kind of things that happens. And of course, it's not really that surprising because one of the other things that we constantly have to struggle with is the problem of what uh, some would refer to as sort of just so stories. And so it would totally make sense that this idea of an evolutionary balance between walking upright and big headed kids would be the driving factor. It makes sense to people. And so they didn't look for challenges to it. Um, and so the obstetrical dilemma just became a sort of fact, quote unquote, um, because of the powerful appeal of the idea rather than a close look at the actual data. Um, and so this is definitely something we have to continue to be wary of and continue to be able to make better. Okay, 
let's move on to something that's completely different um, and has a happy ending. So hooray. Uh, NASA apparently recently had a scare with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, The Hubble had a failed gyroscope, which caused NASA to put it into safe mode on the 5th of this month. Now, the gyroscopes help the telescope to rotate properly and to lock in on targeted areas of space, so they're pretty important. Luckily, they were able to sub in another gyro. The only problem was that this particular backup gyro hadn't been turned on in seven and a half years, and that's kind of a long time in space. It's a long time anywhere for something like a gyro that has a lot of moving parts to not be doing anything. And so when it started up, it spun at quote unquote, extremely high rotation rates. (laughs) And so NASA had to put the telescope into what they call a running restart uh, and switched the scope between high mode and low mode, which basically made the telescope rotate from side to side. Uh, And so I'm just going to read this in full because it's kind of fun uh, language about this sort of thing. In an attempt to correct the erroneously high rates produced by the backup gyro, the Hubble operations team executed a running restart of the gyro on October 16th. This procedure turned the gyro off for one second and then restarted it before the wheel spun down. On October 18th, the Hubble operations team commanded a series of spacecraft maneuvers or turns in opposite directions to attempt to clear any blockages that may have caused the float to be off-center and produce the exceedingly high rates. During each maneuver, the gyro was switched from high mode to low mode to dislodge any blockage that might have accumulated around the float. So basically, they did the uh, very, very technical version of turning it off and turning it back on again, and then shaking it. (laughs) But luckily, this maneuver worked. And so the telescope is back up and functioning because it is still doing a yeoman's amount of work up there. Uh, It is basically... Uh, We need to have it keep working until we manage to get the James Webb up there. And uh, yeah, the James Webb is, um, it's, it's still, you know, being talked of as, you know, going forward, but it is behind schedule and over budget. And yeah, Um, but anyways, hopefully the James Webb will go out into space uh, in the next couple of years and it will be awesome. But right now we're still... uh, really dependent on the old workhorse of uh, the Hubble. So hooray for uh, making sure that it is still available. And uh, thank goodness that that gyroscope uh, sorted itself out. Okay. So now, again, I want to move on and talk about something different. But this is just a crazy thing. Um, It's just it's just so weird. So um, an earthquake that hit on September 7th, 2017 in Mexico uh, registered 8.2 on the Richter scale. It produced strange lights in the sky from the rupturing of rocks uh, with oxygen ions creating uh, electrical currents or basically uh, sort of ball lightning. And it also, it turns out, cracked a continental plate. I'm sorry, that should be an oceanic plate, I think. Um, but basically, you know, the plates that 
that uh, move around the tectonic plates, it cracked a tectonic plate basically all the way through. If you think of it as a huge slab of glass, this rupture made a big gaping crack. Seismologist Diego Melgar of the University of Oregon told National Geographic, all indications are that it has broken through the entire width of the thing. And so the Puebla Morelos earthquake took place in the Pacific Ocean off the west coast of Mexico. Uh, And so all along that coast is basically a bunch of tectonic borders. You have the Cocos Plate, uh, which is where the ocean is, and that's the one that actually snapped. Um, And then you have the three other plates. You have the North American, the Caribbean, and the Panama that are all kind of coming together to uh, make up Central America. And uh, so, you know, it's expected that this area would be pretty seismically active. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And it is. Um, So uh, it is not unsurprising to have an earthquake. But this is pretty amazing. It is a very weird earthquake. So um, they actually think that the that this earthquake uh, ruptured pre-existing planes of weakness inherent in that subduction system from, you know, everything else that's already been going on. And so uh, this earthquake, however, and another uh, 7.1 earthquake that hit on September 19th, uh, they were both a rare type of quake called a bending earthquake. And so this happens when plates collide and one begins to slip beneath the other. But then the plate that is slipping reverses course and bends upward, sliding horizontally beneath the other plate, at least in this case. And so the plate then changed direction a second time and it dived vertically downward, plunging itself deep into the Earth's mantle. And so this buckling uh, will stretch to a certain point, but then ruptures. And so these quakes are called intraplate or intraslab earthquakes because they're not right on the edge. And of course, this one was even more more unusual version of this unusual type of earthquake. And so when bending a material, the outside generally stretches while the inside compresses. And so this generally means that a rupture would only affect the top of the plate. However, this earthquake, also called the Tehuang Tepec earthquake, uh, ruptured the Cocos Plate completely through to a depth of some 50 miles below the surface. This shouldn't even be possible because the rock at that depth is over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and should be too elastic to rupture. And yet it did. The team suggests two different possibilities for the event. First, that the gravitational force pulling the tectonic plate downward was pulling with enough force to counteract the compressed, squishy state of the rock. And or (laughs) that seawater could have seeped into the fault and cooled the minerals within the rock, making it more brittle. So if you uh, cool down the rock, then you get sort of rock that's easier to break. But if it's, you know, squishy and molten, it doesn't, it's hard to break sort of silly putty. (laughs) Um, And so they think that water is getting down there and actually cooling it into actual rock rather than um, molten or semi-molten rock. And so this 
Research suggests that lithospheric rock can be brittle and fail at greater temperatures and ages than previously considered. And so, you know, it's kind of a big deal when you have this thing that does something that should technically be impossible. Um, you know, this is a really young plate, actually. Um, and so the rock overall shouldn't be that brittle, because um, generally as the plates get um, older and cooler, they're much more likely to break. Um, but this one's pretty young. And so, yeah, it's a little bit of a crazy thing that happened. Um, so yeah, definitely a scary, crazy thing. And of course, unfortunately, um, you know, it's interesting to talk about the geology of it, but, you know, a lot of people did die. There was a tsunami. Um, these types of, um, earthquakes often cause tsunamis, Actually, luckily, it was on the landward side uh, rather than the oceanic side. And so it actually, even though it was huge and really devastating, it could have actually been worse. Um, and so that's that's at least something that even though it could have been worse, uh, they did manage to avoid that catastrophe. Oof. All right. So let's move on now and talk about an iceberg that almost seems to be wearing a Halloween costume. <laughs> Scientists with NASA's Operation Icebridge released the original photo last week of this sort of, basically, it looked like a rectangular uh, iceberg. And so it only showed a portion of the odd iceberg. But this week, new pictures came out, and the iceberg is a highly angular quadrilateral. Now, it is extremely straight-looking sides. They definitely don't resemble the usual ragged edges of such floating pieces of basically frozen water. <laughs> and so the pictures were captured by senior support scientist Jeremy Harbeck, who spotted, spotted the weird iceberg near the Larsen Sea ice shelf. Now, apparently, this isn't the only iceberg to show such angular regularity. Apparently, these so-called tabular icebergs are the product of calving ice sheets. Uh, that's where basically large chunks of ice suddenly break loose from a ice shelf. I thought it was pretty interesting, said Harbeck in a NASA statement. I often see icebergs with relatively straight edges, but I'm, I've not really seen one before with two quarters at such right angles like this one had. Now, the researchers are actually interested in the A68 iceberg, which weighs an estimated 100 billion tons, which is just literally a number that I don't think we can conceive of. <laughs> and it's roughly the size of Delaware. Um, and so it's huge. I was actually more interested in capturing the A68 iceberg that we were about to fly over, but I thought this rectangular iceberg was visually interesting and fairly photogenic. So on a lark, I just took a couple of photos, Harbeck said. And we appreciate it because they are really interesting and fun. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was just a delight. And if you haven't seen them, I will, um, I will definitely put a link on the Facebook page to the weird uh, iceberg pictures. Apparently there are some others even in that particular um, picture set that are also angular, but not like this one. This one is just crazy. Okay. 
So I'm going to wrap up quickly tonight with a just a fun story because it makes me very happy. Um, and so there is a wonderful, wonderful um, obstetrician and um, gynecologist, uh, Jen Gunter, who I must have referenced before. Um, if you're not reading her, her blog, you should be. She is amazing. And uh, one of the wonderful things that she's been doing is basically being a light in the dark against uh, some of the Gwyneth Paltrow uh, goop stuff that is uh, completely and utterly uh, trying to part people from their money uh, for really dubious products. And one of those has continued to be the quote unquote uh, jade egg which is supposed to uh, help women, uh, especially with uh, the issues around um, sort of their pelvic floor muscles. And it's supposed to help with Kegel exercises. The only problem is, is that one, there's no evidence to suggest that that's even a true thing that it can do. Two, it's jade and jade is actually a porous stone and so that can lead to uh, either just messing with the uh, delicate balance in the vagina or it can actually lead to actual infections because again it's porous and you're supposed to leave it there for at times hours and it's also of course being uh, marketed as an ancient Chinese remedy. And so that's what this paper is about that she just published. She teamed up with a um, with Sarah Parkak, an archaeologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and they looked through uh, several archives of Chinese um, writings, and uh, they looked at a database of 5,000 jade objects, and surprise, surprise, they did not find any evidence that ancient Chinese women were using these ridiculous things. Um, and so it has just been pretty ridiculous. Um, and in fact, <laughs> it turns out the government has gotten in on it too. Uh, in September, Goop had to agree to a settlement of $145,000 over a lawsuit filed against it by California prosecutors, uh, which basically claimed that it was false advertising, uh, that the jade eggs would basically do anything for women. Um, and so, yeah. Oh, and it also went after the fact that they were trying to advertise uh, that essential oils could treat depression. Um, and so I just like the fact that she actually took the time to team up with someone and to actually write this paper because it is important. Um, it might seem trivial and it might seem petty, but it's really important to fight against this kind of ridiculous, um, just fear mongering. All right. So that is my time for tonight. And I will be I will be back in two weeks uh, with more science and skepticism. Have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.